there's um, a programme, it's been on for many years, 20 years plus, uh, on Radio 4, called Thinking Aloud. I don't know anyone's ever listened to it. Uh, it's on a half four on Radio 4. And um, it's quite fascinating because often they have people uh, appearing on the programme who have uh, written a book on what seemingly very mundane topics uh, and written quite lengthy books on them. And they're often about the, the history and social significance of these rather mundane things. And there was two in particular, I remember them because I actually did, uh, was intrigued by it and I went and bought the books and read them. One was on barbed wire. Now, would you think you could get a massive book on barbed wire, its history and its social significance? But there is. Another one that I read was on lifts. You know, the things that you get in and they go up and down. And it's incredible what lifts, the history of lifts, how they came into being, the social significance of lifts. And you thought to yourself, how could somebody write so much about something that seemingly is quite <coughs> sort of straightforward? Well, when I was looking at uh, some of the um, commentaries on this particular uh, passage, this was said about this passage. It was said, why is there so much, so much, so we read it in two, two goes, um, on this particular miracle? You know, what is its significance? What can we learn from it to expand our love and understanding of our God and ourselves and God's love for us? Well, one of the, the, uh, the commentaries by John Legg, he said that the story of Naaman, the Syrian, is one that challenges us all. It confronts our prejudices and compels us to look at ourselves before a holy and sovereign God. And through um, our Lord's help this evening, that's what we seek to do. And I've really div divided it into three simple sections. We're first of all going to look at that man's ways are not God's ways. And then we're going to look at that in the reverse, that God's ways are not man's ways. And then we're going to look to finish with on what this passage speaks of God's grace and God's judgment. So, if you've got that, uh, those verses in front of you, let us, uh, let us begin. Now, as we read in the, the account, eventually... Elisha, um, or, or the Naaman, was put on to Elisha uh, through the, uh, the king of Israel having a coronary when he thought that it was him who was being asked to heal Naaman. Um, but eventually, uh, put on to Elisha, Naaman brings all his gifts and trappings of power and respectability and wealth. Let's have a look in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 5. It says, the king of Syria said, go now, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman departed, took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And I mean, these wouldn't have been uh, cheap clothes from Primark. These would have been expensive 
uh, things. And then a bit later on in verse 9, Naaman went with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And you can just imagine it. um, Elisha lived obviously in a very humble dwelling. We know from the Shunammite woman that uh, he didn't have much money um, and she put him up while he was uh, travelling by. Um, And we know that he was affected by the famine, lived a very humble life. And you could just imagine as he opened his window and saw this, uh, this chariot and horses and all these things embarked, as uh, one of the commentators said, on his front lawn. Um, and it reminded me uh, once of a film I saw of the, uh, the singer Tom Jones. When he made it as a millionaire, uh, obviously for publicity, he turned up with all his bodyguards and his white Rolls Royce into this uh, grotty uh, street in South Wales where he was born and all the curtains were twitching and people were coming out touching his Rolls Royce and that would have been the, 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 the sort of reception that he, they probably would have got. So Naaman turns up with a lot of baggage but we see, don't we, in the following verses that it wasn't just physical baggage, it wasn't just the, the clothing, the, the gold and the silver and uh, all, his, all his minders that he turned up, he, he came with, with sort of emotional, spiritual baggage as well. And it's often said about Naaman that um, in, his, in his coming to God, that he went through four stages, and it's the stages that all believers have gone through. That he originally was haughty, he was proud, He then realised he was helpless. He then became humble and he was healed. So let's have a look then specifically at Naaman. In what way did he have this sort of spiritual baggage? where, Where was he going wrong and how was things wrong in his life? Well, first of all, when we look at this and we realise what God has to change for him to be healed and for him to become a believer, we see, first of all, that he's got a wrong view of God's servants. Now, even from these verses, but um, from um, the sort of the history that's known, that the, the, their prophets and priests of Rimmon were known for being flashy, for being wealthy, um, high opinion of themselves, um, living in wealth and thought very highly of. And that's the sort of prophet that, that Naaman expected because that's what they were like in his own um, country. And in their, his country, they judged the, the strength of a religion and the, uh, the greatness of a prophet as how it matched up to that standard. Were they wealthy? Were they, were, were they seen as powerful? Uh, and were they looked up to? But of course we know from um, the, the earlier um, messages we've had on Elijah, he was a humble man, helping the poor and helping the, the helpless and those in famine. And, those, um, and that was the type of person he was, a person who needed somewhere to stay when he was uh, travelling. 
So they had a, he had a wrong f view of God's servants straight away. The second thing, the second thing that he had a wrong view of, uh, and very importantly, if we look at verse eleven, when he became uh, when he lost it a bit, really, Naaman it says, Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me. Now, I don't know, uh, it's put in ita italics in, uh, in my Bible, but I don't know what, what it is from the Hebrew that, uh, that, that led to that. But it, it gives the idea, me, of all people, a general, a well-respected, a powerful man. In a celebrity in Syrian circles. If they had a, um, a celebrity magazine, he'd be on the front of it quite regularly. You know, Elisha, oh, you know, I'm doing him a favour. You know, if he could heal me, what a feather in his cap. You know, he'd be able to have all these things like profit to the rich and famous. You know, how is he, you know... He, but he's not treated like that, is he? He doesn't get that sort of reception at all. What sort of reception does he get? Well, we read in those verses, first of all, that he didn't even get out of his chair, did he? It says that um, Elisha, verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him. Didn't even bother getting up to see him. Sends a messenger out to me, Naaman most important and then just to rub salt in the wounds he tells him to wash seven times in the Jordan it says Elisha sent a messenger to him and says go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean he was incensed Naaman he was furious as it says in verse 11. It reminded me of the, the story of, um, uh, I won't say who it was, but um, a well-known TV celebrity who happened to live near um, a home mainly for old people who suffer from dementia. And he was at a loss one afternoon. He thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll cheer up the people in this home. You know, I'll make them feel great. You know, that somebody as famous as me has deigned to go into this, this home. And so he, he, he goes into the home and sort of um, knock, uh, knocks on the door and goes in. And uh, somebody comes up to see him and says to him, uh, you have to sign in there um, and just wait there and somebody will come to see you. And the person was just a bit like Naaman, was offended. And he said, do you know who I am? And the woman there said, no, I, no, I don't. But if you want to know who you are, go and ask the matron in the office. <laughs> Brought down a peg, wasn't he, Naaman? So he had a wrong view of, of the prophet, had a wrong view of himself, and he had a wrong view of salvation. Really... When you read these verses, Naaman had written God's script for him, hadn't he? He expected that God would heal him in a particular way, in a flashy way. Lights, sounds, 
you know, something really fantastic in some great river, something absolutely marvellous, and it would leave him and his pride intact. In fact, would build him up that, as thinking himself even more important. So when that didn't happen, and the, the solution washed seven times in the Jordan seemed to him not only nonsensical, but demeaning and humiliating. He rejected it. And he became disappointed with Elisha and Elisha's God. And many people sometimes, they, they come to church, by such a church, and they, I don't know what they expect, perhaps they expect incense or people wearing fancy clothes and they just hear the word preached and they hear the simple message of the gospel and they think you know they hear the message that that there's no good in them that they need salvation through Jesus there's nothing they can do and they they think that's 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 not very good is it and they don't come back again you see if Elisha had healed him in the way he expected, you know, all this whistles and flashing lights and posh rivers and um, something exceptional, he'd have returned to Syria more full of himself, wouldn't he? He would have come back thinking, you know, he must have thought I was good. He must have thought I was good. The way he healed me. You know, and I'm, you know, and, and, and it must have been because, you know, I'm a, I'm Naaman, I'm a general, I'm a celebrity. So he would have returned more full of himself and in control of his own life. But you see, God had a, a plan for him. Far greater than him being a general, than being a celebrity and being a powerful and respected person. And in order to achieve this plan, God had to remove all signs of his pride and boasting. And indeed, it started in verse 13, didn't it? He goes out in an absolute huff, in a rage, it says. He turned away and went away in a rage. And verse 13 says, And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says, Wash and be clean? So God was at work in humbling, humbling him through these servants. So he had a wrong view of salvation. So we found out there then that man's ways are not God's ways. You know, man thinks that you arrive in this, this life through um, being a star. And um, you... You, you become accepted by God by being a, uh, a great and good man. But that is not God's ways, and we'll return to that a little bit later. But let's look at the, the second. God's ways are not our ways. And I thought I would just go back a bit, go back a bit into the story, rewind a bit, <coughs> right up to the, the beginning. Um, verse 2. This young, captive girl. Let's imagine this poor girl. She was taken on one of uh, the Syrian raids, which Naaman probably was responsible for. Pick that up from the first verse. Um, and as one commentator said, and it may well be true, 
um, that, that possibly a parent's were killed. They just took people who they thought were going to be useful to them. Anyway, she was captured. And what we do know is that she had no rights. She had no social standing. As it, or basically, she was a slave, a servant in um, this Syrian court in, of a despised nation. And what we learn from this is that God, and our pastor mentioned this this morning, when he was talking about um, David Livingston. But God does really choose the weak, the ordinary, the overlooked to fulfill his purposes and confound the wise. Now, in the world, many people feel that they have to be somebody, you know, famous for five minutes. You see the cues of people who want to audition for this, um, things like X Factor or, or, or whatever, that they want to, that, that you hear children being asked what they want to do and they want to be a pop star. They want to be a premiership footballer, not a championship footballer, a premiership footballer. They want to be somebody. We live in a celebrity culture. And we have to be careful that that doesn't seep in into church life, into Christians' lives. We don't have to be a leader, you know. We don't have to be upfront. We don't have to be an office bearer to be significant. What makes us significant as believers is being a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. God delights to use nobodies for his glory to touch lives. You don't have to be a great preacher to bring people to Christ, but you do have to become and have a love for sinners, a confidence in the power and the willingness of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners who call on him, whoever they are, whatever religious background they're from or nationality or social situation. This servant girl, if she started the whole thing, she was the basis of this whole chapter. All the rest of it would not have happened if it had not been for this servant girl. And in the world's eyes, she was a nobody, not given any attention, no social standing, overlooked completely. But there's another important lesson, and it would be wrong to, uh, to move on from this girl without, without mentioning it. We talked about her being dragged and captured from her own country, taken away from her family. Um, we don't know whether, as the commentator said, we don't know whether they were killed or not, but completely alone. Wouldn't it make you bitter? It would make you bitter. It'd be a temptation to feel aggrieved. That, that, that you know, you, you're serving people, you're serving Naaman, and he's been responsible for bringing such misery to your life. But this girl was not bitter. She could easily have thought to herself, well, it serves him right. Getting leprosy, be cheering, you know, for what, for what he's done to me and my family. 
bringing me here from home on one of his raids, as it says in the verses. But there's no animosity, is there? It says, doesn't it? She said to her mistress, it's only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of this leprosy. She had no animosity. She wasn't reveling in his illness. She asked, what does God want of me in this situation? And it is when things go wrong and things get difficult. Now, we are sinners, and it's easy to, to think, if, if, you know, why does this happen? And feel annoyed and feel aggrieved and feel upset. And, and when, when other people go through difficulties, feeling cheering as well, at least they're, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who's gone through difficulties. But no, we should ask, what God, does God want of me in this particular situation? And that is what this, this, uh, this maid said. This is what this young captive girl said. So God's ways are not our ways. Let's now look then to God's grace and judgment. Well, this account is a vivid picture, isn't it, of God's grace. Naomi has a great need. His riches and all his efforts, I'm sure he's been to all these prophets and priests in, in Syria, otherwise um, he, he wouldn't have uh, thought of going to, to Israel, who they captured. All his, his, all his money, all that he has, all his reputation cannot deal with his leprosy. And, and what is presented to him as an answer to it is initially an affront a humiliation to his pride. He has to be humbled. And he had to be humbled. It's the only way that he could receive the gospel. It's the only way that he could be healed spiritually. See, God's not interested in our wealth. He's not interested in our standing, our popularity, our gifts, um, or anything else that we've got that we think um, serves us well standing before God. Any merits that we think that we've got. He had to come to a point where he realised that he was totally dependent on God. He needed to be humbled. And Naaman had to acquiesce in God's way. There was only the, the, the gospel is exclusive, isn't it? It's not a, some broad-minded um, attitude that you can, you know, uh, that you can believe in any God or that you can go to church a few times or do the odd good deed. As that you must call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. It's an, a narrow way. And this is what um, Naaman was being told, that you have to go down into the Jordan and go down seven times for you to be healed. There's no other way. He had to acquiesce in God's way. His pride stopped him from doing it. But God used Elisha, this humble man. He used him and he used as well his servants to, to humble him, to make him realise that despite who he was, despite what he thought he was, 
despite what he thought religion was about, that he had to come in repentance to God. And that's what he did. And that is amazing, verse 16, isn't it? When you, when you think of the, of the way God has worked, that, he can, that this man can say in verse 16, Naaman said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And it says in before, it says, verse 15, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, as it says, take a gift from your servant. Here is an outsider being brought into the people of God. And he's brought through the same way that the people of God, the, the, the covenanted people were brought in. It's by believing totally, relying totally on God and believing in, and as much as he understands that we know from some of the verses later on, that he still had uh, an imperfect understanding of, um, of, of, of what it was to be, um, to, uh, what a true faith was but he certainly had a saving understanding that he had to rely completely on God's grace and it's a picture isn't it of in the old covenant of the word being brought to the Gentiles we'll perhaps pick up on this but we can't really go without talking about Gehazi he, uh, he crops up in quite a few verses here. But what I want to say really is that you might think to yourself initially, that's a bit of a, a strong punishment of, um, of leprosy and that it shall cling to him forever. He, he will not be healed. But when you think about it, the reason why Gehazi was judged so strongly because Gehazi was basically trying to undo what God had done in Naaman's life. He was trying to put a price on God's salvation. You see, Gehazi initially thought, oh, Naaman's got off a bit lightly here. It's like when people who have uh, uh, done terrible things and they become Christians, and some people might you know, think to themselves, you know, oh, when, when they've done all that in the past and now they're accepted by God. A little bit like that, really. But he thought he'd got off lightly and he thought, here's an opportunity to make a bit of money. So he tells him, goes up, catches him up and, and uh, tells him a pack of lies, doesn't he, about this, uh, this poor um, son of the prophet. But you see, what Gehazi was trying to do was trying to put a price on God's gift of salvation. And that was the error which was seen that initially hindered Naaman, wasn't it? Naaman thought that he could buy healing. He thought that he could be made okay with all his cloaks and his shekels of gold and, and his talents of silver. That's what he thought. And God, through Elisha, had brought him to the point of realising that salvation cannot be bought. It is a complete free gift of God to those who rely on God totally for their salvation. But what you see could have happened, and we pray that it probably didn't happen, that, that uh, 
that Naaman was now convinced of, of his faith in God. It could have made Naaman th thinking that, uh, that there was a price to pay for salvation. He might have thought that, yeah, you know, uh, I do have to give a bit of money. He might have thought that God is a taker, you know, that God uses opportunities to, to take um, in this case, these uh, talents of silver and these two changes of garment, just like the Syrian gods where you, you sacrificed to them and you gave money to the priests and it was all giving and giving. Um, and it was like an exchange. But you see, our God is not like that. And that's why Nehem, um, Gehazi was treated so strongly because... He was trying to undo, maybe not consciously, maybe he was, but he was trying to undo what God had done, and that was the free gift of salvation. That we are saved, it doesn't matter whether we're on our uppers or we're on our fifth Mercedes, that, God, that God's grace is not dependent on who we are, our social background, our money, our popularity, that if we come in repentance and throw ourselves totally on God for our healing, for our spiritual healing, our forgiveness of sins, he will do so. In Christ alone, uh, the grace is free, the free gift of salvation. Now, before we finish, just... Um, I mentioned about God's grace and that it was God's grace to an uncovenant in person and it was looking forward to the gospel going out to the Gentiles but it also talks about judgment and I think in order to understand this could you turn to Luke chapter 4 it's easy to miss to miss these, uh, these verses. But Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to read um, for verses 14 and 15 and 27 and 28. Um, then Jesus uh, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And then at uh, the end of it verses 27 to 28 it says well we'll read a bit more from verse um, 24 then Jesus said assuredly I say to you no prophet is accepted in his own country but I tell you truly many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was great famine throughout all the land but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And so all these in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill, brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, I read those verses because they bookend uh, Jesus' preaching. 
And at the beginning, the early verses, 13 and 15, the, the crowd is saying, wow, what a preacher. Glorified by all. They thought he was fantastic. And then at the end, they would kill him. What was it that he was saying? What was it that he said that so angered them? Well, it was a wake-up call for the Jews at that time. And it was used by Jesus in a similar way. You see, what made them angry was that they could be passed over. As they were passed over there, as it says, there were many people, come in, uh, Israelites, who suffered with leprosy. And they weren't healed. But this outsider, this Syrian, was healed. They were being passed over, as indeed Jesus was telling them that they'd be passed over now. Elisha's foreshadowing the coming of Christ as a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Telling them, really, that because of the way they were, yes, they were God's covenant people, but they, put their, they were putting their faith in being in the covenant. They weren't putting their faith in the God of the covenant. There were people who were privileged, but they were putting their, their faith in that privilege, not in the God who had privileged them. That's what the, the, um, the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes were doing at that particular time. It was a wake-up call to them then. And it was a wake-up call, <coughs> as we know from what Jesus just said, to the Jews at that time. That here, and this is the marvellous part of Naaman's leprosy, that this was an outsider. An outsider who, who was steeped in false idol worship an outsider who was full of his own importance an outsider who would wreak havoc death and destruction on God's people but he was an outsider that through God's grace through sovereignty and the use of his prophet Elisha that he was able to say that I know now there is no God in all earth except in Israel. What marvellous grace, but there's a judgment there. And perhaps as we were thinking about that, it isn't just a, a message for that time or for Jesus when he was on earth, that it's a message for us. That perhaps as we remember 500 years since the start of the Reformation, we make sure that our confidence it's not just being in reformed, but subscribing to right doctrine. I, w I was very impressed by um, the, the, the films that we had because he didn't just tell a history about what it was to be reformed. He mentioned people like Richard Sibbs who said that you have to be reformed in your heart. If you just cling to the fact that you go to a reformed church and you call yourselves a reformed, and that alone that you can become lukewarm and passed over like many of Israel. In prayer and Bible study and obedience, we need to make our walk with Christ a living reality, not a dry, empty experience, perhaps relying on, oh, I'm, you know, I've got my doctrine right, 
or I go to the services or, you know, I, I, I don't let people down. And that's the message from that today. So it's a marvellous message, isn't it? And that's why there's so much written about this incident. In a way, Elisha has quite a, a small part in it. But God has a great and massive part. If he can, can heal, if he can convert somebody for all the reasons that we've said, who had no knowledge, interest, sympathy in anything. The only reason that he, he stepped foot back into um, Israel territory, as, it, as is such, was just to get healed for his own benefit. That God met him. He humbled him. Made him realise that he was helpless. And he healed him. And converted him a Syrian going back into a pagan land. Amen.